I just want to pray um, over what I'm going to share. Lord, I just I thank you that you are the words, you are the word, and you are the one who has the words of life. You are the life. And Lord, you are the, the one who shows the way, and you are the way. And Lord, I pray that your words of life and the way that you have to bring us into life, Lord, would come through today so clearly and would release the life that you want it to release. Lord, let your word do its work in us, that we wouldn't get in the way, that we wouldn't try and compromise it or change it or put our thing on it, but that it would simply have its way in us. Thank you, Lord. You know, he is um, the one that spoke and said, I've come that you may have life and life in abundance, isn't he? He's the one that said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is eternal life, to know him. Jesus was the one that said, and we heard already today, that the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus came to give us eternal life. And I just want to talk about what is eternal life because I don't know about you, but one of the um, offshoots of um, living in a time where the gospel, instead of being a gospel of kingdom, has been a gospel of salvation, we get into the mindset that eternal life is what happens when we die. It's living for eternity, that's what eternal life is. Um, but all of these um, scriptures and so many more beside are talking about eternal life as being him. Eternal life is the kind of life that God, the eternal one, has in himself. And I remember reading somewhere someone saying, if you don't have eternal life now, you're not going to get it when you die. Interesting thought, isn't it? And the thing is that Jesus came to give us life. Everything that he, he did was to bring us into this life that he himself lives in. And the thing is that um, th that sounds great, and so far we like this message. Um, but it's interesting how he teaches us um, to come into the life. Um, because sometimes that part of things we just don't quite get. It doesn't, it seems like an incredible paradox. Now, um, I'm not going to give too many clues away yet, but another way that we sometimes express eternal life is a resurrection life. Now, in that word, we have a little clue where I might be going on this. Because if you have a resurrection 
what has come before. Ooh, interesting. Okay, now this we're now getting into the paradox of, in, in our natural mind, it seems a paradise, paradox. So um, what I want to really talk um, and just explore is a foundational truth that he's really been um, just again and again and again talking to me about. And that is the, the expression that he says, take up your cross and follow me. And I started to really get curious about this because um, I hadn't really thought about it. But when I started thinking about it, I thought, what on earth does that actually mean? I mean, in our modern mindset, we think of it post-Jesus' cross. And so take up the cross means something to do with Jesus' cross. But actually when it was spoken, it was the first time it was ever spoken in the New Testament, right? First time that the word cross was ever mentioned. So what did it mean to those guys? Interesting thought. Jesus hadn't even said anything about going to the cross, but he said this, take up your cross and follow me. And he didn't just say it once. That particular expression comes up in the four Gospels six times. That's outstanding. There are a lot of things that don't come and repeat that many times. The interesting thing is that close on its heels, four of those times, is the, um, if you find your life, you will lose it. And if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. So that this has made me realize that um, this is very foundational. What, what, what was Jesus talking about? That this comes up over and over and over and over again. So um, there are, I'll give you the scriptures. I'm, I'm not going to go through them, but I think it might be a good idea for you to, um, what, what I did was read all of them and then read what came before and what came after. And all of these times are, are significant, the sort of things that were being spoken about um, before and after. So we've got Matthew 10, 38 and 39. Uh, we've got Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Mark 8, 34 and 35. Mark 10, 27 to 21. Now that'll only come up if you're um, looking at the KJV. Um, the take up your cross, um, and Luke nine twenty three to twenty four, Luke fourteen twenty seven, Luke seventeen thirty three, and John twelve twenty five. So two times the two things are together, and um, the rest of the time those two expressions are used separately. So both of those expressions turn up six times. So the getting back to what does this take up your cross mean and what did it mean to the disciples? The um, from what I understand, the Roman cross was a, a common sight and very easily understood by the disciples of the day. Um, for four BC um, they had had a, a big rebellion someone called Judas in Galilee, had led um, a great rebellion. 
And the Romans, in quelling that, had actually crucified 2,000 Jews. And they had actually put the crosses alongside the roads on the way to Galilee. So anybody having heard Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me, would immediately think of a Roman cross. So what did that mean? They, they knew that it, the common thing, um, and we heard it last Sunday, was for people, as, as the people were carrying their crosses, people were crying out, dead man, dead man. Okay, so <laughs> it didn't mean um, half dying. It didn't mean um, kind of getting into a negotiation with the Roman soldier and getting yourself off the hook. It actually meant death. So what does, what does this mean? I think that the, the most powerful thing about, think about this is that when you took up your cross, your only hope was in resurrection. I want to illustrate this because I think this is one of the keys of this passage. The two thieves that died on either side of Jesus that day, they both came to the end of their physical selves. Would you agree? Okay, they were faced with the end of their physical life. But one of them joined in with everybody else who was yelling out. You remember what they were yelling? Jesus, if you're the son of God, save yourself. And he was adding, and save us as well. So everybody was seeing the now. They were seeing that Jesus was on this cross and he was going to die physically. So they were measuring his divinity by his ability to get out of that physical situation, right? So the, the, the thief on that side was still seeing that. He still had retained the right for an opinion about this and the right to demand for himself. The other thief, really interesting what he says, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. You see, both Jesus and that thief saw something outside of the physical now. He saw that Jesus had a kingdom that was being established. And so his hope became in the resurrection. Okay, we're talking about resurrection from a physical, but also this kingdom resurrection. So the coming to the end of ourselves is what this death is about. But we've got to be careful that it takes us to the right place. So when we look at the, the other part of this, um, we, we look at the, you know, when you die, um, 
He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, we've got this image of death. And so we can think, well, you know, what's, what's he on about? Is he wanting to go, us to go kill ourselves? No. Just put it out there. No, he's not. <laughs> um, you know, what, what is he actually saying? Is he saying, are we prepared to die for him if it comes to that? If someone has a gun to our head and says, or a probably more topical, a knife to our throat, are we going to deny him at that point? Well, yes, probably. Um, but maybe there is, alongside all this, there's a really fundamental thing that he was trying to bring. Because he said, if you lose your life, you will find it. So this life we're talking about is resurrection life. Now, Jesus lived in resurrection life, didn't he? Everything about him permeated the life of God. And one of the biggest factors about Jesus was that he said things like, I can of myself do nothing, but as I hear, I judge. I seek to do the will of my Father who sent me. So one of the prime things about Jesus is that he, he did nothing of his own self. He was always doing the will of the Father. He, his heart and his hearing and his sight, everything was to hear what, what God his Father was asking him to do. And I believe that that there is there is no way that we can receive that life until our flesh has died. Um, I'm going to quote Mr. A. W. Tozer, who lived um, early 1900s, um, just to describe what flesh is, because I think sometimes we get a bit muddled. And he describes it so well. He says, so subtle is self or flesh that scarcely anyone is conscious of its presence. Because man is born a rebel, he is unaware that he is one. His constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of it at all, appears to him a perfectly normal thing. He's willing to share himself, sometimes even sacrifice himself for a desired end but never to dethrone himself. Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being, it's each one of us, created to worship before the throne of God, sits on the throne of his own selfhood, and from that elevated position declares, I am. So what should we do, he says. This is the deep heart cry of every man who suddenly realizes he's a usurper and sits on a stolen throne. Tozer goes on, there must be a work of God in destruction before we are free. We must invite the cross to do its deadly work within us. Our uncrucified flesh will rob us of purity of heart, Christ-likeness of character, 
spiritual insight, fruitfulness, and more than all, it will hide from us the vision of God's face. That's the work of the cross. And that is the beauty of what he has given us. Because um, I've come to realize, and it has taken me an awful long time, that I can't change my flesh. I can't um, reform it, make it better. I've spent a lot of my life doing that because I didn't understand this. And I'll, I'll tell you a testimony. Most of you heard my, the last testimony of how stuff happened in, in um, our family, and it brought me to the absolute end of myself. What I didn't say was that a lot of who I felt I was, my identity was tied up in being a mother. So if I... Um, if I felt that things were going right and the kids were, you know, flourishing and whatever, I was in a good place. And if they weren't, I was in a really bad place um, because that was who I was. And I'd convinced myself that this was my identity. And when I came to a point, so, okay, backtrack a bit, as the kids were small and growing up, I found that I struggled struggled so much with getting frustrated and angry. And I used to yell at the kids and get, oh, and not be able to um, control that. I would just have these outbursts of anger and frustration. And I tried and tried and tried. You've no idea how hard I tried because, remember, being a mother was the most important thing. It was where all my identity was. So I was trying really, really hard to overcome this anger and frustration. I would read books. I would get people to pray for me. I would ask God to take it away. And every time I would think, but I've got to do this. I've got to, uh, it's a matter of doing what so-and-so said. It's a matter of um, uh, uh, fa family devotions. That'll do it. And, uh, and I would go from one striving to another striving. And it never got any better. And the backing track to this time where God allowed me to come to the absolute end of myself, I came to the point where I realized there's no way I have got what I need. I do not even have the love in me. And I stopped striving. And all I, at that point, I said, God, you're going to have to give me your love. You're going to have to show me your love because there's no way I have, I don't have it. And so I literally came to the end of this struggle, broken to an utter point of brokenness. But in that point, when I asked him to reveal his love, love for me and for others, he poured out his love in, in such a, a life-changing way, and he revealed himself to me as the father of all fathers, 
and the source that he wanted me to give out to my children came straight from him. And it, it was there all along, but I hadn't actually been able to access it like that because I'd been so busy trying to do the right thing and follow people's advice and do the should, 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 striving in my flesh. So it wasn't until this brokenness that actually suddenly there was, and it was a process, it wasn't, when I say suddenly, the, the point was, was a point of realization, but the, the coming into understanding as love took time. And there was time through that period of time, which I probably said, that I, he, he gave me a picture that I all, what I was doing was standing right next to him. He, he was here, and I was standing here, and my ear was on his heart. And I, I was staying there. Literally, that was my position. To hear his heart, to hear his heart, to hear his heart, to hear his heart. And then he showed me various things of how that could flow out. And restoration came in the situation. But that also changed my understanding of what I had been relying on. So this this mothering identity also had to die at that time. And I realized that actually it wasn't him. I had convinced myself that this was my God-given duty, so that's why my identity was in there. But that, you know, God gives us things to do. That's not our identity. So it had become a bondage to me. And... um The coming to the end of the self was the beginning of the life. The only way to resurrection life is for our flesh to die. First Corinthians 15, um, 35 to 50, um, talks a lot about resurrection. I'm not going to go into all of that. I just want to pull out three verses and ask three questions. So verse 36 says, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. It's just taking a very basic picture of a seed and it has to die, doesn't it? It has to go into the ground and die to bring life. God has put this principle even out there in the natural Verse 40, he talks about there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one and the glory of the earthly is another. So he's talking about, we'll just leave that. Verse 50, now this is the key one. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So the questions are, do we truly understand that our flesh life cannot inherit the kingdom? Because I certainly didn't. I mean, all you guys probably got that. But I still was trying to change my flesh. And I was trying to... um, 
do it whatever way I could. Um, it was part of this gospel of the salvation, this sort of watered-down version that you get your ticket to heaven and then you just try your best. Have you ever had that impression? You get your ticket to heaven and then you just try your best to overcome things and, and live righteously and stuff like that. That's what I call the watered-down gospel of salvation. It's not the gospel of the kingdom. Um, I also had spent a long time in another thing that I truly believed in, that it was all about if I believed enough and I said it enough, then it would go from my head to my heart and it would become my experience. I lived in that, thinking that was a life of faith. I'm probably touching a few things now. Anyway, Tozer says, in coming to Christ, we do not bring our old life up onto a higher plane. He's got a way of putting things. We leave it at the cross. The grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die. God offers life, but not an improved old life. The life he offers is life out of death. It stands always on the far side of the cross. And then he compares the, the real cross of the Bible and the, the cross as it has become in a watered-down gospel of salvation. The old cross slew men. The new cross entertains them. The old cross condemned. The new cross amuses the old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh. The new cross encourages it. So do we truly understand that our flesh life cannot inherit the kingdom? We need to get this. This is truth. The other question is, do we have sight of the glory of the heavenly body, which is very different to the glory of the earthly body? Or do we get distracted and transfixed by the glory of the earthly and don't seek the other? The earthly does have a glory. The flesh does have a glory but it will pass away. And if we get our eyes on that, we're going to miss what is the real glory. Another testimony. He, God has got this amazing way of just asking questions to bring up root systems that um, he really wants to dig out, uproot. And he wants that to die, and he wants it to be put in him. Um, 6th of June this year, I turned 50 years old. And um, before that, um, two years before that, my husband turned 50, and I was fine with that. That was cool. We'll celebrate that. That will be great. But when it came to my birthday coming up, um, I really want to just keep it quiet, thanks. We might just do a little family 
um, you know, dinner or something like that. And God started asking me questions. He said, um, why don't you want anyone to know you're 50? Um, because I might be able to keep the deceit up a bit longer. You know, maybe they won't realize. And then he asked again, why don't you want them to realize you're 50? Well, because 50 sounds really old. And, um, and you know, they'll just kind of, uh, 50 means you're just on the shelf. And, and then he said, but why are you thinking that? Ah. So what pattern of the world have you conformed to, Sandra? You know, conformed means being conned. So I've been conformed to the pattern of the world that says youth is good, being old is not good. Now, if you just take it another step, this is how the Holy Spirit comes. Why would that be a pattern of the world, Sandra? What is my pattern? Isn't my pattern that you would grow up into full maturity in me? And wouldn't this pattern be in total opposition to that? So, you see, when he puts his finger on things and asks the question, it's a good idea to answer and keep answering and keep answering because it's not about just do I say I'm going to turn 50. It's a far deeper root system than that. And when he got to that point and showed me that this thing, I actually was not only conforming to the pattern, but I was um, also walking in that and displaying that to everybody else. In other words, saying that's a good pattern. You know, it's all about being young. Um, that, that I'm in total opposition to what his word says. So this process of death brings us into life. Am I worried about being 50 now? Not in the slightest. Because my dad is called the Ancient of Days. I am a pit squeak compared to him. So, it's not about conforming the flesh, but killing the flesh. We've talked about that. God's plan was always to set us free and bring us into his life. The only way that this can happen is the way of death and resurrection. So we see that this whole take up your cross and follow me is about not having any confidence in the flesh. And Paul talks about that in um, Philippians 3. Not quite sure whether I've got all that in here. But, oh yes, here we go. 8 and 9, he says, I, um, it's not the one I want. Um, he talks about being the true circumcision and that, that we have no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes into the, the whole passage about counting 
everything a loss. And that was all his confidence in everything that he could have done, everything that he was, everything that he understood, everything that had been his confidence in the, in the past, like me with my identity in being a mother. That had to be counted as loss to come into what? You listen to this. All things are lost in comparison with the priceless privilege, the overwhelming preciousness, the surpassing worth and supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord and of progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with him. That's what's up for grabs. For his sake, losing everything and considering it to be mere rubbish in order that we may win Christ and be found and known as in him. So the life is him. And these things that would hold us back and be our life are the things that we're losing. And we we end up, you know, it says lose your life. And in one, say, in one case it says if you hate your life, you will gain it. The, the thing is to not count it as worth anything because our eyes are seeing him as he is. We're seeing how he sees things. We're seeing things um, as eternal instead of temporal all the time. Our eyes are like that thief that sees the kingdom that's being established. And the things that would entangle us can't entangle us because he's just cut them off. So, to lose my life is to find his life in me. His thoughts and purposes pulsing within like a river. It's to realize that the other life was empty in comparison. And all seeking fulfillment in anything but him brings more thirst. It doesn't bring the fullness of abundant life that we long for. To have no confidence in the flesh is to have all confidence in his power instead and to come into life at last as he designed us. It's not a negative. It's the incredible power of transformation. To take up our cross means to cease striving in my own efforts to better myself or overcome sin. To repent and to surrender and receive by faith his life and power. So it's to surrender daily to the king who would sit enthroned on our hearts the way he designed it, as Lord of all. It's to worship him with our lives given. That's why it says that our true worship is our life laid down, a living sacrifice. To be a worship leader, I am simply one who lies down and surrenders. 
It's to endure the work of the cross as it crucifies our flesh. Just like Jesus did. He set his eyes. And it was for the joy that he was coming into that he endured the cross. He despised its shame. So his eyes weren't there. And it's the same for us. We can have our eyes set on our groom. He is our prize. This is what um, Paul said, that this one thing I do, I forget what's behind and I press on because my eyes are on him. He is my prize and I'm going to take hold of him as he's taken hold of me. He hadn't got there. I haven't got there. It's a journey. But this one thing we do is we don't put our confidence in this other stuff. We put our confidence in him. So it means all about, it means all surrender. And I just want to say this one thing. The unhappiest person in the world is a worldly Christian. Now, the reason that is, is because you've got enough of God not to be satisfied in the world, and so much of the world that you're not satisfied in God. There is no half pie. Jesus didn't say, sometimes take up your cross. He didn't say, um, as has, has, this has been interpreted as, take up your cross means to carry the burden and the trial that God's given you. That's not what it means. It never, how would that mean that to those disciples? It meant death, sure death, and that the only hope was in resurrection. It can't mean anything else. It's all, surrendering all. And surrendering all brings the life. Surrendering part doesn't bring the life because those things can't coexist. Do you see what I'm saying? So I, I just want us to spend some time, and I might get the musos to come up. And that, that song, um, You Won't Relent Until You Have It All, I, I want you just to use it as a time just to come before God and ask him, you know, do you have my all? Am I holding something back? And I, I don't want to get all soppy about it. Just ask him, you know, be real and, and let him speak by his spirit because the life that he has for us is far outweighing this, but he needs all of us, yeah? So we can do that now. That would be just awesome.
get into a place of vulnerability and people are asking some really honest questions, great questions. And um, here's one of the questions that was asked. How do we shift from the position we might currently be in, reading the word at a superficial level, even though our intentions might be all good, but where it is only filling us with knowledge to moving us instead of moving us to a transformational position where it really is birthing life in and around us. How does it go from one realm to another? I just want to read you the answer that I, as we're discussing this through life group, we've created a dialogue on email. I've just encouraged the person, I said, continuously be a seeker or pursuer of the reality that is being spoken. Always carrying an expectant heart that as you seek, ask him with all your heart and believe he will reveal in you this reality by the power of his spirit. He sees the heart and the desperation and hunger of our hearts. And I believe he responds to this. Place yourself in an environment continuously where the living word is being proclaimed. We cannot do this work at all, but we can be a seeker of this reality. Hebrews 11.6 says, He rewards those who diligently seek Him. You may want to fast as a spiritual discipline as part of this process. given us himself to be able to walk in the spirit but we need to know him and the only way to get to know him is if he actually reveals himself in us because we can't know him without that happening otherwise we just go down the other pathway of self-modification legalistic behavioral modification trying to become a good Christian instead of going no I'm completely 100% dependable dependable on you revealing yourself in me, filling me so that I'm able to walk this reality out and that's how my flesh dies just dies as he pours himself in and it's the act of choice of actually wanting him more than you want yourself and your stuff it's as simple as that there has to be an act of choice of our will that goes I no longer want this which I'm really passionate about and love I want you and if that is wholehearted and true and sincere and continuous he will hear that prayer see that prayer and answer that prayer and all of a sudden you'll look back and go I've become the very person that the word speaks of and it can happen steadfastly or it can happen suddenly as well both but it takes, and so I encourage this person, an active choice of one's will.
the very thing God has given us all, our will, can be amazing for us, or it can actually destroy us. The power to choose Him or other stuff and our own stuff. And ultimately, it's our choice. So, Father, I pray today, no matter where we're at, we would choose you. We would choose you. And out of that choice of discipline today, as we spend the time continuously placing ourselves in environments, placing ourselves around others with a heart of humility, you will bring that desire. Father, you will take that desire and you will turn it into delight. And we will no longer be found, but we would have moved from one posture into another and experiencing this resurrected life now because we live in a position of delight because you've brought us into that. So Lord, I don't pray for the strength to be there. I pray you would be my strength and that through that you will do the work in me. In Jesus' name.